Good morning. Please open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36 this morning. You can find that passage on page 888 in the Pew Bible. As we wrap up John chapter 3 this morning, we've now been in this beautiful book for five months. John is 21 chapters. This will take us a little while, which is all right because this is John. I love this book. I don't know about you, but I at least have been greatly challenged and comforted by it so far. But starting next week, we are going to take a summer break from John to tackle the book of 1 Timothy. I'm going to introduce and kind of do an overview of the book next week before we take off on our sabbatical. We're going to talk about a little bit what that is and why we're doing that next week. Um, But then when we get back in August, we'll pick back up in John chapter 4. So this can serve as our end of part one of John summary sermon, which this text is just perfect for because verse 36 goes right along with the main theme of the book. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Remember, John 20, 31 is John's purpose statement. This, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So believe, live. Pretty simple, profoundly important. Believe, live. And why is that so important? Well, it's because of one of the implications of that truth that we are somewhat quick to ignore these days. I don't know, but it's been interesting to watch how our culture has responded to its confrontation with death over the course of this year plus. Even a couple of weeks ago, uh, a famous New York rapper died. Uh, his, na- his stage name, whatever you would call it, was DMX. Uh, one of the headlines that I saw read, R.I.P. DMX. It was also posted in huge letters on the Staples Centers last January when Kobe died. R.I.P. Kobe. These days, when basically anyone and everyone dies, the R.I.P. is automatically affixed to their name. R.I.P. whoever. Rest in peace. And so the cultural assumption is that all death is automatically and inherently by nature rest. It is is peace. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, used to call this our culture's belief in the doctrine of justification by death. The doctrine of justification by death. Remember the Reformation. If the big idea of the Reformation was the doctrine of justification by faith, the idea that one is declared right with God only by the grace of God, given through faith in Christ, well then the big idea of today is the doctrine of justification by death. Which would be the idea that just by nature of dying, one is right with God and enters into a state of of rest and peace into heaven. R-I-P. Is that the case? Why are we devoting years to the study of John's gospel? Why are we coming back again and again and again to its main purpose? Believe and have life in his name. Well, it's because according to scripture... The doctrine of justification by death is a deadly and damning lie. Because the assumption that any and all death results in rest and peace is a deadly and damning lie. Because of the part of 336 that we didn't read yet. In this great chapter, this chapter known for its declaration and explanation of the love of God, we tend to skip this part. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Listen, that is not R.I.P. That is not death as rest and peace. That is death as eternal death and wrath. Listen, what I want you to consider this morning is, what if that's actually true? What if some of the fundamental basic truths of the Christian faith are actually true? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through Him. That there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What if that's actually true? Well, then it would and should change 
Everything. Parents often have to tell their children, get your priorities straight, right? and then teach and train them how to do so. When I would happily play video games for hours and hours and hours upon end to the neglect of my math homework, right, I needed my wiser parents to come in and encourage me to get my priorities straight. Again, I was a child. Hours of video games providing instant and immediate pleasure was hard to resist. But what if my parents had allowed me to persist unchecked in that foolish priority to the expense of my studies? I don't know, maybe I would have failed some classes. Maybe if I'd failed some classes, I wouldn't have gotten into Carolina. Maybe if I hadn't gotten into Carolina, I wouldn't have met Melissa. No Melissa, no Emma, no Lila, no Nora, no Tessa, no meeting Ed Moore, no being graced with the privilege of pastoring Woodside Community Church. All potentially because of misplaced priorities. You see, I needed others older and wiser than me that loved me to direct my attention to the big picture, to the future, to show me the foolishness of making the pleasure of a couple of hours of a video game my priority when I should be preparing for the years and decades to come as my priority. Well, how foolish then would it be to live for a few hours at the expense of many decades? How much more foolish then to live for a few decades at the expense of eternity. And yet, is that not exactly what everyone does? Is that not exactly what we ourselves are daily tempted to do? How do we overcome this tyranny of the now? How do we combat the utter foolishness of giving priority to the present? Well, John gave us a hint last week. Last week, we looked at the secret of greatness. What was that? What was the secret of John's greatness? Well, we saw that it was giving priority to the providence of God. It was knowing and trusting in the pervasive providence of God, which then results in great joy and great humility, which results in the great demonstration of John's greatness that we read in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the secret of John's greatness. The secret of John's greatness is that he gives priority to the greatness of another. The greatness of the only truly great one, the one who is greatness personified. He must increase. I must decrease. Why is that? It's because of verses 31 through 36. Why? It's because of the primacy and priority of Jesus Christ. That's John 3. 31 through 36. And that's the culmination and climax of the grand and glorious third chapter of John. It's all about the absolute supremacy of the Son. I want us to focus on just two points this morning. Actually, it's going to be one big main idea that then logically results in the second, in the response to that one big main idea. We've been looking for the last few weeks in Sunday school at these various different responses to Jesus. Well, that's exactly what we see here as well, as there are ultimately only two different responses to Jesus. So point number one, big idea, nice and simple. I want us to see the primacy and priority of Jesus. And then point number two logically follows the primacy and priority of your response to Jesus. So if last week was the secret of greatness, this week is simply the greatness of Jesus and thus the gravity of your response to the greatness of Jesus. It's eternal life or it's wrath. We all of us need to get our priorities straight. This must be our priority. How could you not give your time and attention, your very self, to the thing that determines your eternity? It just seems common sense, doesn't it? And yet how hard is this to do? Let's see if we can do that together this morning. Let me read the text for you. John chapter 3. I'm going to read for you verses 31 through 36. But I particularly want you to pay attention to this part because this is what God wants to say to you in his inspired um, word. John writes, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you would bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we have just sung, show us Christ. Father, this text shows us so much about the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we are incapable of seeing the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ on our own. So we ask you to work. We ask for you to help the preaching of your word, Lord. By your spirit, I pray um, that your words, my words, which I pray would be faithful and accurate to your words, would carry great power and great weight and great authority, not because of me, but because of you and because of your spirit. Father, use this word um, to expose our hearts and our minds. Use this word to expose Christ to us. Use this word to help us to get our priorities straight. Show us the greatness of your son, Jesus Christ. Show us the gravity and the importance of our response to him. Father, I desperately need your help in this time. Every one of us in this room, just in the hearing of your word, desperately needs your help. May we be focused and attentive to your word. And we ask that by your spirit that you would work on our hearts um, through that word. And, and so we ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Point number one, the primacy and priority of Jesus. You could just say the greatness of Jesus. The main, ideas, uh, main idea of these verses is hard to miss. Notice, just looking over the text briefly, notice all the, the he's. Notice who he's talking about. He comes. He who is. He who comes. He bears witness. He has seen his testimony. He whom God has sent. The Son. The Son. The Son. These verses are all about Jesus. Back in verse 26, John the Baptist is asked a question about Jesus. But remember, John's never called the, the Baptist in this gospel. In, in this gospel, he's identified more as John the witness. In verse 26, Jesus is referenced as he to whom you bore witness. Because this is both what John is and does. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 7, when John was first introduced to us, he was introduced as a witness who came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So you see, John exists to prepare for and to proclaim Christ. John says, I am not the Christ. I am not the one. I am not the point. My point is to point to another. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who ranks before me, because he was before me. This is the Son of God. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's the end of John the Baptist. We are leaving John the witness behind. Yeah, I think we're leaving him behind. There's, there's some question about who is speaking in verses 31 through 36. So if you look at verse 30, we know that John the witness is speaking in verse 30. But in your, the original Greek, if you ever go back and look at a manuscript, they don't have punctuation marks. There are no quotation marks. So we're not entirely sure where John the witness's words end and John the author's words begin. So some think all of 31 through 36 is still John the Baptist witnessing about the Son. I'm just going to leave it to the scholars to sort that out. I lean more toward verse 31 being John the author's commentary on what John the witness has just said. Remember, Jesus stops talking in 3.15, we think, and it seems that John the author starts talking in 3.16. I think the same thing is happening here. John the witness speaks in 27 through 30, and then John the author expands and explains in 31 through 36. These verses just read a little bit more like John the author. But, can't be 100% sure, so I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. And ultimately, it doesn't matter. Either way, it's inspired scripture making the same point. And that point is the greatness of Jesus. Jesus must increase, but John the witness must decrease. Why? Because of 31 through 35. It's because 
of the very identity of Jesus. What do these verses reveal to us about the identity of Jesus? I want us to spend the bulk of our time on this. Because these verses reveal so much more than we even have time to barely cover in one short, long uh, sermon. So where do we see Jesus' greatness in these verses? Number one, first, we see it in the big idea in verse 31. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. Restate it again at the end of the verse. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is one of the main things that John's gospel is written to reveal. The greatness of Christ, the absolute supremacy of Christ, and thus the primacy and priority of Christ. And he is greatest first because of his place of origin. He is above all because he comes from above. And John, a great writer, is here repeating one of his key ideas and themes that he threads throughout his whole book. We saw this back in verse 13 of chapter 3. No one has ascended above into heaven except he who descended from above in heaven, the Son of Man. So he is the one who has descended from above, thus he is above all. Heaven is his home, above his abode. And that's why John opens his gospel the way that he does. That's why John's beginning is so different than the beginning of the other gospels. This is what he seeks to especially emphasize. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God, by definition, is the greatest one. He is the best being. Therefore, if a large part of living rightly involves getting our priorities straight, then the beginning of living well must start with putting God in the prime and proper place of authority. Jesus is God. And we're just too used to that truth. He is above all. Thus, he has the position of priority because he is God himself. And there's even more implied in verse 31. He is above all because he comes from above. Well, what is that? What does that mean? That's the incarnation. Chapter 1, verse 1, the Word was God. Chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the coming of verse 31 is his incarnating. The one who is above all comes below and gets low. This is Philippians 2. The one who is in the form of God emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of of men. See, there is greatness. The highest one got the lowest. God has become man. The one who is above all comes, comes to us and for us. That's greatness. But there's so much more. So we first, we see his greatness in his place of origin. Well, second, we see the greatness of Jesus in that he is the revealer of God. Look at verse 32. He comes and He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Skip to verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. You see, the greatness of Jesus is evident in part in the witness of Jesus. And again, we've already seen this. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus, uh, the one who is from above, the only one who is from above, is thus the only one qualified to speak about the things that are above. And since those things should be priority, remember the foolishness of focusing on the present at the expense of the future, focusing on the immediate at the expense of the eternal. Well, since Jesus is the only one with the right and the authority to speak about these heavenly and eternal things, then we should listen to him. His greatness and his significance is revealed to us from the very beginning in the book of this book in his title, The Word. And that's, that's huge, and that's hugely revealing because words reveal. Just in that title, we're being told that Jesus is the revelation of God. Words communicate. Jesus is the communication of God. Words relate. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is how God relates to us. Listen, it's just common sense. The creator of all things is the most important of all things. Jesus then, 
as the word, the one who bears witness, the one who utters the very words of God, reveals to us the most important of all things. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, the Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, Jesus makes God known. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. God is a spirit. You cannot see a spirit. Jesus took on flesh. God is holy. Holiness can have nothing to do with sinfulness. Jesus took on flesh to take on our sin. All of this, all that Jesus does, is for the purpose of revelation and relationship. He reveals God to us and then restores God to us by redeeming us from sin and reconciling us to God. See the greatness of Jesus in what he brings, in the greatness of what he brings, in the greatness of what he reveals. His greatness is evidenced by the greatness of the message he brings. And his priority is evidenced by the priority of the message he brings. Say if you were to come to me after the service and tell me, hey, good news, I got you a chip cookie. Hey, that is good news. Right. I love chip cookies. Uh, Lemonberry today, go and get it. I still think they'll hook me up for promoting them at some time. So that would be great news. But say that right after you brought me the good news of a free cookie, Someone else ran up to me and said, hey, good news. I got you $10 million. Uh, Later, chip cookie. As delicious as you are, which messenger or which message is going to get the priority of my attention and the priority of my affection? The $4 cookie or the $10 million cash? The message that Jesus brings is infinitely more valuable. His gospel, which as we're seeing in Romans, is the good news of the gift of the righteousness of God given by grace through faith. The good news of of that relationship, relationship with the God who is life, eternal life, restored through the work that Jesus accomplishes in our place, on our behalf. Jesus comes to reveal that to us, and then he comes to accomplish that for us. Is that which is of first importance your priority? Seriously, are you living for the $4 cookie at the expense of the $10 million cash? Do you know this good news that Jesus has come to reveal? And again, I mean really know it. We study what we love. How knowledgeable are you of the great work that Christ has revealed and accomplished? How is your doctrine? We've been doctrine heavy lately. We're getting it in Romans 1. We're going to get it in 1 Timothy. We want to adopt the 1689. Why? Because of Christ. Because of the absolute priority of knowing Him and the God He reveals. Listen to Calvin on this. I love, man, the evangelical church could use this quote today. We are increasingly surrounded by doctrinal insanity. Um, Heed the words of Calvin. Calvin says this, For how comes it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines, but because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us? For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ, because Satan knows that by this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine to place Christ before the view, such as he is with all his blessings, and that his excellence may be truly perceived. I love that. For Christ alone makes all things, all other things, suddenly vanish. Why is that? Why does everything else suddenly vanish in comparison to Christ? Because of his surpassing greatness. Because of the surpassing greatness of who he is and what he came to reveal. God himself. Life itself. Therefore, place Christ before you in all things and at all times that you may perceive his excellence and make him your priority. 
So we see the greatness of Christ in part in his revelation of the most important thing. That's the second thing. Third, we see the greatness of Jesus in the Father's love for Jesus. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son. Stop there. John the Apostle is frequently called uh, the Apostle of Love. That's in part because John is referred to six times in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And as one who had a particular knowledge of the love of God, that same love that overwhelmed and consumed him then permeated his writing. And it's all rooted first in the Father's love for the Son. John emphasizes this throughout the gospel. In chapter 520, he says, The Father loves the Son. 1017, for this reason the Father loves me. 159, as the Father has loved me. 1723, Jesus says, You loved me. Twice in Matthew, at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, we hear the very voice of the Father. Now remember, if you remember back to Genesis, I, I, I talked about this. I argued, and this is maybe somewhat new to us, I argued that actually hearing from God the Father is somewhat rare. Remember, Jesus is the Word of God. That doesn't just begin in John 1.1 in the New Testament. He didn't like all of a sudden become the Word. No, generally, when you hear God, you are hearing the Son. He's the Word. But not at the baptism and transfiguration. That makes these words of great significance. What do we hear the Father saying? And one of the few times we hear the Father speaking, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Parents, do you tell your children that you are well pleased with them? God, the Father, says to the Son, I am well pleased with you. I I love you. There are delightful depths here that we do not have time to plunge. There are thrilling Trinitarian truths there. But for now, we just have to leave it at the Father loves the Son. Right now, I'm only trying to show how that itself is a great revelation of the greatness of the Son. I've encouraged you before to read and meditate on the sublime summary of the nature of God in chapter 2, paragraph 1 of the 1689. It's just one of the most compact, rich paragraphs ever penned by man, I think. Chapter 2, paragraph 1. What is God? He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, Perfectly wise, holy, free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth. Wow. He's the best being. He is absolute perfection always. Here's the point that I'm driving at. There's this Great. This is a, one of the great Scottish theologians that doesn't get enough credit. There's a man named Henry Scougal. And in part, he gets kind of left behind because he died at age 27. Um, again, these, all, some of these guys are really convicting. He's 27. Uh, he only wrote one book, but it's a gem. Uh, get the life of God in the soul of man. It's a masterful work. But in it, one of his famous lines, Scougal writes this. He says, The worth and excellency of a soul... The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Follow that? Think about it. Again, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. That makes sense, right? Similar to the illustration from earlier. If I choose the $4 cookie over the $10 million cash, I'm revealing something about myself. That I'm an idiot, right? Uh, That I'm stupid and foolish, right? So your love reveals your heart. Again, this is common sense. So we'll come to that again. But I'm actually make a different, I'm making a different point than Scoogle is making. Yes, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love, but also, catch this, the worth and excellency of an object is to be measured by the soul that most loves it. That's too confusing. Here's what I'm trying to say. God is perfect. God loves perfectly. Therefore, the object that the most perfect person most perfectly loves must necessarily be 
the most valuable and excellent object. The Father loves the Son. And the greatness of the Son is revealed in the fact that the most perfect person makes him priority and gives him primacy. The Father loves the Son. And that reveals the greatness of the Son. And our desire should be to have our loves ordered like the loves of the perfect God. In the great Father's love for the Son, the greatness of the Son is revealed. Do you give priority and primacy to that which God the Father himself gives authority and primacy? In Augustine's Confessions, just a a, a groundbreaking work, the first true autobiography. Everyone should read Augustine's Confessions. In that book, Augustine argues that the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love, which makes sense. There's there's something disordered in me and in my loves if I choose $4 cookie over $10 million cash. And Augustine bases this idea on the two great commandments of Matthew 22. Love God and love neighbor. This is the whole law. And the whole law is all about love. So, So we should be asking ourselves, based upon our loves, are your priorities straight? Are your loves in order? The perfect person, God the Father, loves the Son. Therefore, it is wise and good to love that which God himself gives priority and primacy. It could be argued that all, I guess, or at least most of our problems uh, in the Christian life and our errors of thinking and feeling and doing result largely from a forgetfulness of Christ or a minimization of Christ. We need to get our priorities in line. We need to love, we need to get our loves in order. The Father of all loves the Son above all. He is true. He makes no mistakes. He does everything perfectly. Should we not then also most love the one that the perfect one most loves? Right, so the, uh, the greatness of the Son is revealed simply in the Father's love for the Son. Fourth, we'll pick up the pace on these last two. We see the greatness of Jesus and the sovereign authority of Jesus. Go back to verse 35. We didn't finish verse 35. It says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. We've talked a lot lately about the sovereignty and providence of God, so we can be brief here. But basic idea. Wouldn't we want to give priority and primacy to the one in whose hands are all things? Jesus is the one who is above all because he is the one who is sovereign over all. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, tells us that Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And the Father put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. I don't unpack that phrase. Him who feels all, fills all in all. That passage tells us that all things are in his hands and that all things are under his feet. That's greatness. Sharon read for us Colossians 1, Tuesday evening at prayer. Verse 15, Colossians 1. Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is a side note. Here's why biblical meditation is so important. Here's why you need Psalm chapter 1. You need to read it and memorize it and heed the importance of meditation. You could fly through those verses and get nothing out of them. Were you to sit and to stew in those verses... Church, I could preach for years on those verses. All things were created through him. All things were created for him. 
That changes everything. That should fundamentally reorient and change your life. In him, all things hold together. He's the theory of everything. Physicists are looking for a theory of everything. It's, It's Christ. So he creates all things. He sustains all things. In everything, Paul says, he is preeminent. Is he preeminent in your life? Does he have the place of primacy and priority? J.C. Ryle concludes his commentary of John chapter 3, these verses, with this. I love this. Ryle says, we can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high thoughts about Christ, can never love him too much, trust him too implicitly, lay too much weight upon him, and speak too highly in his praise. He is worthy of all the honor that we can give him. He will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that he is all in our hearts on earth. Because he is the sovereign Lord who comes from above, the revealer of God, the beloved of God, in all that and much more, the greatness of the Son is revealed. Which also then must mean, fifth and finally, we see the greatness of Jesus in the fact that life is found in and only in Jesus. If all things are given into his hands, then so too is life given into his hands. And that brings us to uh, point number two, more our application, much, much shorter. Point number two, the primacy and priority of your response to Jesus. And let me read verse 36 again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, here's the question we should be asking. And this textually, you know, exegetically. What's the relationship between verses 31 through 35 and verse 36? Why does verse 36 follow what we've just looked at? We've just been given this grand description of the greatness of Jesus Christ. I have utterly failed to do it justice. Wonderful verses. And then we get verse 36. Why is it he, 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 the son, the son, the son, whoever believes, whoever does not obey? It's it's precisely because of the primacy and priority of Jesus. It's precisely because of his supreme and surpassing uh, greatness. It's precisely because all that is revealed about him in verses 31 through 35 that 36 logically and necessarily follows. Just take the end of verse 34 and verse 35 as they lead directly into verse 36. Yeah, I skipped over the end of verse 34. I didn't realize that until I was going back through my sermon. This would be another reason for the greatness of Jesus. Look at what it says. For he gives the Spirit without measure. That could be read as Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. I don't think that's what the text is saying. Most likely, it's best to read the he as the God the Father that comes right before it. So the phrase means that God the Father gives to God the Son, God the Spirit, without measure. It's beautifully Trinitarian right there. And that cannot be said of anyone else. Praise God that we are given the Spirit. But we are not given the Spirit without measure. Jesus is. He is the only perfect man, perfectly indwelt by the Spirit. The same Spirit we saw back in verses 6, 7, and 8 that gives and grants the new birth, which is new life. So... Because the Son is the one that has the Spirit in full measure, the one, chapter 1, verse 33, who baptizes with the Spirit, the Spirit who is and gives life, and because the Father loves the Son above all, and because the Son has all things in His hand, therefore, your response to this Jesus is that alone which determines your eternal destiny. I think we kind of wonder about the faith thing sometimes. Like God was kind of like, you know, how's this going to work? And like he kind of threw a dart at a board. like, faith, let's do faith. Faith will be the way that, that people are saved. No, God is not just arbitrarily declaring that faith in Jesus is what brings eternal life as if there could have been some other way. No, this is the logical conclusion and a logical necessity that follows precisely from the fact of who Jesus is. 
See, God is life. He's the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the gracious giver of new life. Life is found only in reference to God. Jesus is God. He is from above. He reveals God. He's the most beloved of God. He has the spirit without measure. He has all things in his hand. Therefore, life is and can only be found in reference to him. Faith, then, is no more than the completely logical and reasonable response to a, confronta- to a confrontation with the person of Jesus Christ. Because of who he is in all his greatness and glory, because of his inherent priority and primacy as the Son of God, it logically follows that coming to him, receiving him, that believing in him will result in the eternal life that is in his hands. The life that has always only been found in reference to God. He is so great and grand and glorious and generous and gracious that my words fall greatly short of his greatness. But this is why we preach Christ crucified. Because he's everything. We are convinced and the word is clear that he is everything. And thus your everything depends entirely on what you do with Jesus. So all of those things that people are super worked up about right now and all caught up with and obsessed with, all of it just pales in comparison to who Christ is and to what you and others have done with Christ. Look at who he is. In just these few short verses, look at what he has done. He is above all. He has come below. He is above all. And in our sin, we put self and everything else above the one who is above all. As I know myself fairly well, it's not good. My sin is me taking that self and all my sinfulness. I have this amazing ability to be chock full of great pride and at the same time great sinful insecurity. Isn't that amazing how that can go together? Uh, I'm a wretch, and yet in my sin I can say, I'm above and I'm more important than the one who is above all. That's what we all do in our sin. It's utter foolishness. And yet, he has still come below. The one who is most beloved of God most reveals the love of God for his people by taking on our flesh and taking on our sin and dying in our place so that we could live. Think about it. Taking on the very sin of our unbelief and rejection of him. That's part of what he takes on. And it's on the cross that his greatness is most clearly displayed as he suffers and dies there for me in my place, his enemy, the chief of sinners, so that I could be forgiven made his friend, and declared righteous. Do you really see who he is? Do you see why he deserves and demands the place of absolute priority and primacy? It can be no other way. There is no other way. This is just who he is. Your response to the one who is above all determines single-handedly your eternal destiny above all other things. Believe in him. Put your faith in and put your whole self in the hands of the one in whose hands are all things already. Why would you want to be anywhere else? Why would you want to live for anything other than the one who died so that you could live? Get your priorities straight. This is the priority. Because of who he is and because of the rest of verse 36. Because to not believe the one who is above all, to not obey the one who inherently holds the place of priority and primacy, is to not see life. In other words, it is to die. Spiritual death. Eternal death. And we just don't give much consideration to the reality and the horror of eternal death. Understandably, caught up in the tragedy of all the physical death surrounding us, we almost entirely miss the eternally greater tragedy of spiritual death. But here it is, staring us in the face. Reject the one who is above all. And what follows? What remains? Tells us. Only wrath. But the wrath of God remains on him. I want you to think about it. What else did you expect? What do you think should happen when you reject the one who is most beloved of God. 
See, people get all upset when you talk about the wrath of God. Christians get all upset when you talk about the wrath of God. We try to shove it under the rug and act all embarrassed by it, you know, often avoiding it or entirely or explaining it away entirely. But the Bible talks about the wrath of God a lot. We preach expositionally through the Bible. Therefore, when we come to the wrath of God, as it stares us in the face in verse 36, we have to talk about it, which means that we're going to have to talk about it a lot because God's word talks about it a lot. Because a God without wrath would be a moral monstrosity. A God who is not angry about and opposed to evil is no God at all. God's wrath is simply his measured and appropriate response to sin and evil. But then read that in light of what we've just seen in verses 31 through 35. That would then mean that there is no greater evil than the rejection of God's great son. Because of verses 31 through 35. Because of who he is as the greatest one. There is no evil greater than the rejection of the greatest one. There is no sin more significant than the one, than the sin of rejecting the one who is of the most significance. I've been reading a lot of the parables, on the parables the last few weeks as I prepare for Sunday school. I stumbled upon an old, obscure exposition of the parables. I think they're called the parables of our Savior. It's by a pastor who would have been over in Manhattan at the end of the 19th century. His name was William M. Taylor. He pastored a congregational church in this beautiful building uh, that's since been destroyed. It would have been right around Macy's today. It's right around Herald Square. And I was reading his exposition of the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21. If you don't know that one, the parable of the wicked tenants. God is the landowner. The wicked tenants are the Jewish religious leaders of the day. The son is obviously Jesus. Well, the, the tenants of the land, they reject and they kill all the prophets, the men that the, the owner sends to collect. And then they reject and they kill the son of the landowner, thinking that they'll get the land once the son is out of the picture. And so then Jesus poses the, the Pharisees a question after this story. He says, hey, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do when he finds out how they rejected and murdered his son? And then Taylor goes on to draw three applications at the end of this parable. I think they were wonderful. And the first was that you have to see your great privilege. The first was great privilege. Theirs was to be entrusted with the kingdom. What's your great privilege? Taylor says this. He says, I love this. Will you realize that in hearing the gospel, you are enjoying the very highest favor that a sinful man can know? you believe that right now? Some of you right now are like, God, this guy is so long. I wish he would be quiet. Why are his sermons so long? Maybe they should be shorter. But do you realize the great privilege that you are enjoying right now? Not because of me. Not because you're listening to me. But because of the message. But because of the gospel. But because of hearing of the greatness of the gospel that offers the greatest of saviors. This is the $10 million cash. Priorities. This is the greatest privilege. But Taylor goes on. If this is the greatest privilege, then it follows in the second place that the greatest sin a man can commit is to reject the greatest privilege. A greatest sin a man can commit is to reject Christ. That is the sin of sins. Our culture has all kinds of sin of sins right now. We're all kind of like, this is the thing. These are the bad things. This is the sin of sins. This is the condemning sin. He says, and every man to whom the gospel is preached must either commit that sin or accept the Lord as his Savior. He cannot be neutral. You have two options before you. You will either commit the greatest of sins and your rejection of the greatest of privileges and the greatest of Savior, or you will accept and receive the Son and the life that is found in the greatest of privileges. You cannot be neutral. To receive the greatest of offers is the greatest of privileges. To reject the greatest of privileges is the greatest of sins. And then Taylor concludes, finally, he says, there follows this terrible inference. The greatest doom is that of those who are guilty of the greatest sin. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for us if we persistently reject Christ and his salvation. The rejection of the greatest privilege is um, the greatest of sins, which results in the greatest of dooms. And it could not be otherwise because of the absolute primacy and priority 
of Christ. Your response to Jesus must be your absolute primacy and priority. Are your priorities straight? Are your loves in order? What is your time, your thoughts, your use of your money? What do these things reveal about what stands in the place of primacy and priority for you? It is utter foolishness to put anything in that place other than the one who is above all, Jesus Christ, because of who he is. Logically, whoever believes in him has eternal life. Whoever does not obey him shall not see life, but the wrath of God rightly remains on him. Which means, church, believe. Believe in him. Then, yes, physical death means R-I-P. But if you do not, then physical death means the opposite of R-I-P. Verse 36 tells us what physical death means for all who are apart from Christ. My first sermon this year, I said we need to add to our statement of faith. You need to wire it into your brain. We need to believe this, that everyone without Christ goes to hell. That's just what scripture says. And that's by nature of who Christ is as the way, the truth, and the life. He is in the place of primacy and priority for the whole of reality. Is he in that place for you? He's he's everything. Is he your everything? I'll close with one of my favorite letters of John Newton. Uh, This is Christ All-Sufficient. This is, what, this is how Newton summarizes and writes and be encouraged by these words. Newton says this, How often have I longed to be an instrument of establishing you in the peace and hope of the gospel. And I have but one way of attempting it, by telling you over and over and over of the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. You want nothing to make you happy but to have your understanding and your eyes more fixed upon the Redeemer and more enlightened by the Holy Spirit to behold His glory. Oh, He is a suitable Savior. He has power, authority, and compassion to save to the uttermost. He has given His word of promise to engage our confidence and He is able and faithful to make good the expectations and desires He has raised in us. Put your trust in him. Oh, church, Jesus is a suitable savior. Do you see the surpassing and supreme significance of the savior? It doesn't bring you comfort and joy. Does it bring you rest and peace? Because of who he is, in his surpassing greatness, in his primacy and priority, it is only death in Christ that is rest and peace. Come to him and find rest for your soul. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, please help your word now. I pray that your spirit would do its work on our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us, I pray that you would help me uh, to get my priorities straight. Father, I pray that you would show us the things that we tend to put in the place of priority, the things that we tend to love and live for um, before Jesus Christ. Father, continue to remove those idols. Continue to reveal to us our idolatry and our sinfulness. Um, Show us what it is that we love more than your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would continue to reveal to us how great and glorious Jesus is. Father, I can go on and on and on and on and on and could accomplish Nothing by my words, but you can accomplish infinite and eternal things uh, with your word. And so I pray and ask that you would. Father, we sang it, and now we pray it again. Show us Christ. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.